I want you to turn to Acts chapter 13. I somewhat doubt you have ever heard a message from this text. You heard from Acts 13, but not this text. We're going to center on one verse. Acts chapter 13 and verse 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. I want to talk about your generation. I've often heard both teenagers and young adults speak of their generation as though it was something unique and vastly different from anything that had transpired to date. And I'm tempted at that point to quote Solomon, the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done shall be done, and there's no new thing under the sun. So any mischief you want to cook up, it's already been tried. Don't bother. And yet, your generation in another sense is unique. It is unique to you. You will never live or function in a different generation. So how you live and function in your generation is important. In preparing this message, I was really surprised. As I perused the literature and perused the commentaries, I was surprised to find out that nearly every commentary on the book of Acts bypasses verse 36. Just sort of a casual reference to the fact that uh, it is an illustration of the main thrust of Paul's message, which is doubtlessly true. Paul is preaching in Antioch of Pisidia. He is preaching to a Jewish synagogue and therefore a Jewish audience, and like nearly every sermon in the book of Acts, he uses as a base of authority for his message of the gospel the fact of the resurrection. Well, this text certainly fits within that context and certainly doesn't supersede it, but it does actually accentuate that context. There are other illustrations in this chapter. For instance, he kind of begins his message with a rehearsal of history, which was often done, uh, especially to Jewish audiences. The people of Israel were marvelously delivered from Egypt and eventually ensconced in the Promised Land. And by implication, they died. The judges are next mentioned raised up for deliverance and restoration. And they all died. John the Baptist preached Christ, the promised one, and he died. David, who interestingly enough is actually quoted in verse 35 from Psalm 16, 
prophesied of the Messiah that he would not see corruption, and David died and did see corruption. Thank God Christ died but did not see corruption. He rose again from the grave, and that was the message, and David was one of the illustrations of the message. But today, what I would like to do with you is look at the illustration in its context, but attempt to discern why God the Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture, added this short but significant commentary on the impactful life of David. In order to do that, I'd like to use something. I don't think we have a journalism major. I'm pretty sure we don't. We, I don't even know if we have journalism classes. But the classic journalism uh, outline, who, what, where, when, and why, is really the way we'd like to look at this text. Beginning, obviously, with who? Well, David, you know very well, he's the primary character in First and Second Samuel in the beginning of First Kings. We've read his Psalms. We find numerous allusions to him in both Testaments. Well, for a moment, who was David? He was a shepherd. Psalm 78, speaking of him, he chose David also as servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. Thank God David was a musician, the sweet psalmist of Israel, 2 Samuel chapter 23. Composer, instrumentalist, I'm inclined to believe that David perhaps made or at least refined his own instruments, and he certainly organized the entire music ministry of the nation of Israel in preparation for the temple. He was a warrior. As a young man, possibly even a teenager, killed a lion, a bear, probably with his shepherd's rod. Killed Goliath with a sling. A military leader. The women of Israel saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. A very real friend. We are told in 1 Samuel 18 that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. A hunted man. Saul chased David for possibly as much as five years or more. And the only people who joined David were essentially outcasts. We're told in 1 Samuel 22 and verse 2, and everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented. How's that for an alliterated outline? What a litany of followers. He was a king installed by God, chosen by God, protected and prospered by God. He was an architect. 
I personally think it's a mistake to refer to the first temple as Solomon's temple. I believe it was David's temple. I believe that he conceived, designed, and transmitted the project to Solomon. He was absolutely a planner. I love planners. They make things happen. Do you realize that the bulk of the material, especially the precious metals that were needed to construct that temple, came from David and his military conquests? You get the idea he just piled up all that money and enjoyed being wealthy. He was an organizer. The entire worship system was designed by David. 24 courses of the priesthood and the Levites. He organized the choirs and the music ensembles. He organized the entire government of Israel so that all Solomon had to do was use it. He was a passionate man. Loved many things. He loved Israel. And he particularly loved the city of Jerusalem, which is why he fled in the Absalom insurrection because he couldn't bear the thoughts of Jerusalem being sieged. He was a counselor, a mentor. A careful study of the scriptures will indicate that a myriad of people came under his influence, including his mighty men, but probably the most important mentoring was for Solomon. And when you look at David's final instructions to Solomon, that is so instructive. What a guy! No wonder his life was impactful. Wait. Stop. A goodly portion of you are sitting there saying, I'm ready to bail out. I don't bring any of that to the table. I don't have any of that. I will never be any of that. Do you understand that we all bring to the table exactly what God wants us to bring? Because that's what he gave us. And that's all we're responsible for. In that, you are really not any different than David. What did he do? The text tells us he served. Now, you've probably got a very mistaken notion from too many old black and white movies that the king was reclining on soft pillows, eating exotic food, being... Uh, uh, serenaded and cared for by slavish servants. Nothing could have been more incorrect, at least concerning David, with only one really sad exception. When the army of Israel was in the field, so was he. He was engaged. He was building, guiding a very young and undeveloped nation and he was leading 
in the worship of that nation. David centralized the worship of the nation of Israel, single-handedly. The word used here is an interesting word. Hupertereo literally means to act as a rower or an under-rower. And it's the picture of a slave chained in the lower part of a Roman galley pulling at an oar. This word occurs three times in the book of Acts. It really doesn't appear anywhere else. The point being made is that when we're talking about David serving, the word used indicates that his service was arduous. May I give an aside? Those preparing for ministry, would you please get over the romanticism of the office. Ministry is work. It's hard work. It's not about being served. It's about serving. Godly pastors do not live on the golf course, sip tea in parlors, and coffee clutch at Starbucks. Neither do they work a 40-hour week. And the reality is their life is actually about 24-7 service. Guess what? So is the Christian life. Biblical Christianity is not a pastime. To use an expression that somehow come into our vocabulary, it is an all-in commitment to being a living sacrifice. While there may be some leadership aspects, the essential character of the Christian life, like the essential character of vocational ministry, is service. Hence, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28 Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace, whereby we may serve acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You've heard it until you tune it out, but it's still true. You're saved to serve. And if you're not serving, you're embezzling because you don't belong to yourself. You belong to the one who saved you. Lock, stock, and barrel. All in. So here's a man with lots of abilities who used all of them to serve with diligence. When did he serve? His own generation. May I ask you, 
What can you, you do about the past? Well, if, you're, if you have sinned and failed, you can repent. And as we learned, I think, yesterday on the subject of guilt, refuse to be controlled by past failure and sense of guilt because who are you to not forgive yourself when God has forgiven you? But beyond that, there's really nothing you can do about the past. Well, what can you do for your future? Well, I'm preparing for the future, and that's a good thing, and that's a wise thing, but ultimately, there's not a great deal you can do about the future because you don't control it. So, what can we do except in the present? And in the present, we can serve. The present time. The present place. The present sphere of opportunity. One old writer put it this way. Between the dreams of the past and the visions of the future, the priceless opportunity of practical duty has too often irrevocably slipped past us. See, some of you are holding yourselves in reserve for that big moment when you can do something that will make a difference. I submit to you that if you're not serving now, you will not serve then. If you're making excuses now, you will cower in the face of the opportunity then. Now, even when I was a teenager, and that was a long time before any of you were born, we talk about the now generation, except unfortunately in my day they called it the age of Aquarius. And you have to be old to even know what that means. It is true. Youth is always now oriented. The problem with the now orientation is that we let the now slip through our fingers. One of the mounting crises of the present time is the already crisis of a shortage of pastors and missionaries. Do you suppose that maybe God is no longer calling men and women to serve Him? Or is the problem the fact that we're not listening? And we've already, we've, we have it all mapped out. I've been there. I did that. I went to college with one thing in mind. Money. I never had any. My family never had any. And I was tired of being poor and living that way. 
So I went to college with a chemistry major and a math minor. Don't ask me to balance a chemical equation. I couldn't do it now if my life depended on it. That was over 50 years ago. I went to college as a chemistry major, a math minor. Forget this altruism of teaching. Man, I'm going into industry. That's where the money is. And I'm going to make the money. And I'm going to have the things that money can buy because I mistakenly thought that if you could dress well, if you could drive my dream car, which was about a 1965-66 Ford Galaxy 500 fire engine red white interior convertible, it was a boat. So I thought if you could dress the part and drive the part and live the part, then people would respect you and you would be somebody. And that, honestly, even as a Christian, is what I lived for. That was really my only goal. If I could serve the Lord along the way, that's fine. I'll teach Sunday school. I'll sing in a choir. I'll do a little bit here and there. I'll go to church. But my plan is to serve me and get what I want. I have no question in my mind because I have sat where you sit. My freshman year of college was the most difficult year of my life for all kinds of reasons. Number one, I actually had to start studying. And I honestly didn't know how. I made it through high school with A's and B's without studying. So I didn't know how. And then I found out I didn't have time because I was working two jobs all the time trying to stay in school. And on top of that, God would not leave me alone. There are some young people sitting here this morning who know that they ought to give up their present studies and transfer to the College of Bible and Ministry. You know that in your heart. And like me, it's very difficult for you to give up on your dreams and let your dreams die and die to yourself so that you can pursue what you know God wants you to do. Laying aside personal ambitions, desires for success, and lives of ease, will we surrender to the persistent voice of the Holy Spirit? Will you serve God or mammon? Will you say with Isaiah, here am I, send me? Because your generation is as lost without God as any generation that has ever walked this planet. Your churches and your mission fields are as desperate for workers as any time in history. And will you serve this generation as David did his 
we have no idea what God will do with that. And that's fine. David's life and legacy in Scripture continues to the present time, even though he died. And the reality is, those of you who choose to serve your generation may not arrive at any pinnacle of success or notoriety. You may never be appreciated in your lifetime, but it may be that you will reach someone whom God will use to do things that you were never able to do. And by serving the present, you will influence the future. Now why? The text actually gives us two reasons why. Who, what, when, why? The first one is by the will of God. I've read the scriptures through many times. And I'm just, re the last number of weeks, been reading First and Second Samuel and First Kings. There's no indication that David ever aspired to any of the roles he fulfilled. It was not David's choice. Neither is it yours. A second truth is that David never refused any of the roles that God chose. And neither must you. Now, please, don't make the will of God esoteric. Don't wait for some kind of an emotional upheaval, some sort of a hard-pressing evangelistic sermon filled with illustrations of other people to become your proof of the call of God in your life. Recent years, because it just keeps coming up. I find myself dealing pe with people who have absolutely misapplied the subject of the peace of God associated with the will of God. Please listen carefully. I suspect some of you are here. Feeling peace about a decision is not the determiner of the will of God. There are a lot of reasons why it is not. One of them is your heart is deceitful and you can talk yourself into almost anything if you want to badly enough. Secondly, the peace associated with the will of God comes after you have obeyed by faith. So many times when God has led me to the next step in life and ministry, I will confess I was scared to death. Just did not know how it could possibly work. 
but I did after I surrendered by faith, find peace. It was what I needed to do. Peace is the byproduct, not the precursor to the will of God. It is actually the response of faith. Okay. If this is what you want, I don't think I can do it. As a matter of fact, I don't even want to do it. But if this is what you want, I'll do it. That's when the peace comes. One of my favorite authors, if you know me very well, is A.T. Pearson. In one of his books entitled The Making of a Sermon, published in the late 19th century, Pearson said, the true life is a part of God's eternal life. All our work is part of God's. His work spans the ages and fills the universe. Over against each true servant of God stands a portion of God's work bearing his name and the date of this year. And the highest success depends on finding out God's plan in our generation and falling into our place in it. You just can't do any better than being where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do. And I promise you, if you will open and maintain an open and honest heart before God, God the Holy Spirit will use the Word of God, circumstances, godly counsel, and burden to say, this is the way. Walk ye in it. Do you really suppose, given how much the Bible has to say about the will of God, that he is going to leave you in the dark if you really want to know? So that's reason number one why David served his generation. It was the will of God. There's a second reason in this text. He fell on sleep, was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. You see, short of the rapture, you're going to die. Some of you sooner than you think. Done a lot of funerals in my years, somewhere in the neighborhood of 145 funerals. And I've buried people from stillborn to old age. And not everybody dies old. One of these days you're going to die, and at some point subsequent to your death, you're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and explain to Jesus Christ personally why you did what you did in your generation. Why you chose not to listen or why you chose to listen. Why you served yourself or why you served him. Every one of us are going to give account to God. Scripture is abundantly clear on that point. 
So who are you serving? Why are you living? For yourself, much has been said about the narcissism of the millennial. Narcissism didn't die when we moved to the next generation, Z, X, Q, whatever we are. Maybe we're back to A. Narcissism is just being about me. Narcissism is thinking I'm the important one and life revolves around what I want, what I think, what I need, what I desire. I remind you again, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Life revolves around what he wants, what he desires. You say, well, I'm afraid if I do that, I will not be happy. I promise you, if you don't do that, you will not be happy. I really don't care how much money you make and how much prestige comes your way. You will never be fulfilled. You will live your life in regret. You will come to the end with a recognition that I did not do what God wanted me to do. And I promise you, one split second after you die, whatever you got and tried to keep will be gone. And what will last is what you did for Christ. Nothing else. So you serve God or yourself, your generation, or your goals and desires. Would you do me a favor for just a moment? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I'm not going to give an invitation. I know it's not kosher in chapel anyway. I just want you to think for a moment. I want you to be honest with yourself. Are you wrestling with the call of God? Are you wrestling with real surrender? Now, you can serve God in any number of ways, in any number of places, and vocational ministry is not the only way you can serve God. Please understand that. And if God hasn't called you, please don't. But if he has, what are you going to do about it? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I'm just going to ask one simple thing. Please listen carefully to what I'm saying. I am not trying to elicit a big response. But if you know God's speaking to you, at least about your attitude, if nothing else, and you know God wants you to serve this generation, your generation, in some capacity, and you're willing to say yes, would you just very, very quietly just stand up where you are I want to pray for you. Would you do that? Whatever it entails. Now, if we could all stand, please. 
Father, a number of people stood to their feet this morning. I know that some of them have already made various commitments to you. I know some of them are already in the College of Bible and Ministry. But their hearts are open and tender and desirous of finding and pursuing your will. And I pray, Lord, that you would just make the way clear. I'm not asking you to make the way easy, because it isn't easy. Self-denial is never easy. But make the path clear. And give them grace and courage and faith to pursue it to its end. For your glory and their good. Please bless Maranatha. The need of this institution in this hour parallels the crisis that we're facing across the nation and across the world. Please protect us. Please provide for us. Please send us the caliber of students who have a heart for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.